0: This morning, before we begin our sermon, I want, to, uh, I want to acknowledge for our church family that we've had a couple of losses this week. Um, as many of you know, Gene uh, Schmutzler passed away uh, earlier this week, and Rose Killen passed away as well. Um, we, love, we love them, and we love their families, and this is a, a difficult loss for a lot of us. Um, I want to I just take a moment this morning, and I want to pray for them. I want to pray for, for us as a congregation in this loss, and for their families as well. Uh, let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we mourn. Our hearts hurt. Uh, we, when we lose those that we love, we do mourn. But Father, we, uh, we recognize Jean and Rose had an abiding faith in you, that they knew the identity of your son, that they loved him, and Father, we know in many ways that their lives were a testimony, a testament to uh, the glory of your Son. And so Father, today we know that they are, they are well. They are probably in a much better state than any of us this morning. They rejoice, they find rest and peace and comfort in your Son. Father, we, pray for, uh, we play, pray for the Schmutzlers, we pray for the Killens, we pray for their loss, and for you to provide comfort and peace to them at this time. Uh, we pray as a church family that you would help us to, uh, to be a, a blessing to these families, that we would surround them with love, that we would encourage them, uh, that we would make sure that they know that they, they are not alone in this loss. But Father, more importantly than that, we pray that we continue to remind them of the good news, of the salvation that Jean and Rose have both received. Father, we pray that, uh, that you just use us in mighty ways, and that you help us to remember constantly the assurance of our salvation through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning we are in John chapter 8. Um, this is a, a long section of Scripture that we're going to be talking about today, and I, uh, I oftentimes struggle with exactly how to break things up. This, this passage, though, is powerful because Jesus has a number of statements in here that are clarifying about his identity. You know, sometimes when we read Scripture, uh, we, we are looking for, um, we're looking for moral code, you know, ways to behave, Uh, Maybe we're looking for a a history lesson on what God has done in the past. Uh, Or perhaps one of the things we're doing is we're looking for peace and comfort. And, And I think we can find those things in Scripture. But if there is something that we find in Scripture that is most significant, most important, the thing that we are supposed to ground ourselves in, it is the identity of God. The identity of his son, Jesus Christ, the, the identity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the ways in which our God interacts with us, the things he cares about, the things he loves. And in John chapter 8, Jesus begins to really just lay out to a group of unbelievers his identity in profound ways. And I want to share with you this morning just a few selections from this particular chapter. Here, at the beginning of our our section for today, in uh, chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, A few months ago, I think, at this point, Kyle had pointed out that these I am statements pop up in the Gospel of John multiple times. Jesus uses the phrase, I am. And that is the personal name of God. That is how he identifies himself. That is is a statement that God makes about who he is, about his existence. Not that he was, not that he will be, but that he, he is. And Jesus adopts this phrase multiple times in the Gospel of John, both to attract our attention to a statement he's making, but also to call on those who are his audience in the moment to recognize that he's making a profound statement about his own identity. There are people who are not Christians that sometimes engage Scripture in a way that they walk away and they say, you know, I really like Jesus. I like his teachings. I think he was probably a nice guy. I'm glad a lot of people wanted to live the way that he asked them to live. But Jesus doesn't ever say he's God. They read the scriptures and they walk away thinking that Jesus has been very unclear about his own identity. They walk away and they say, you know, show me a place in scripture where Jesus says that he's God. And then, of course, they discount all of the writings of the Apostle Paul or John or, you know, whatever, as far as the epistles go. They Don't show me one of the letters. Show me where Jesus says that he's God. Well, there are a number of times that Jesus uses terminology from the Old Testament to offer his identity. Perhaps the one that is the most misunderstood, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. We talked about this in our, our first John class on Sunday morning last week. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is a reference to Old Testament prophecy, specifically to the book of Daniel. See, Daniel has this momentary vision where he sees heaven, the throne room of heaven. And he begins to use this language. He says, I saw one like a son of man in the throne room of heaven. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's referring back to Daniel. There are a lot of people that read that and they think, God, oh, Jesus is calling himself just a human being. No, for the Jewish people that read The Old Testament, for those who know the writings, they are immediately aware that Jesus is making a very bold claim about himself. It's actually why Jesus gets himself in trouble a lot, because oftentimes he is unashamedly referencing his identity as the one that Daniel has seen in the throne room. When Jesus invokes that phrase, I am, about himself, He is referencing the God of the book of Exodus. And I want you to think about that here in the the text as we've read it just now. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I don't know about you, but when I read that and I'm thinking about the book of Exodus, the only thing I can think of is the pillar of fire that goes before the people of Israel, this this presence of God that guides them out of captivity and bondage. And here in John chapter 8, Jesus is invoking that imagery, I think, very specifically. I think that what we see here is that Jesus is telling the people, and as you read the rest of the chapter, I think you can't deny this, you have a problem. You are a slave, and I am here to guide you out of slavery. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. This is a profound statement about the identity of Jesus. And now the crowd that's listening to him, they are well-versed in Scripture. If you remember, any time that we're referring to the Jews in the Gospel of John, we're not talking about the general assembly of the Israelite people. We are talking about The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who handle Scripture on a regular basis, and their assumed role within society is to teach other people what the Scriptures say. And I I will tell you, there are a lot of things that Jesus holds against them as far as their understanding of what God intends by the law, but you cannot fault them for their knowledge about the text of Scripture. So when they hear this statement, I am the light of the world. There's a little red flag that goes up for them. And they are deeply engaged in the conversation that Jesus is about to have. Now, if you remember in the previous chapter, something that had happened was they, they decided that they were going to you know, try Jesus, or not try him, they were just going to arrest him, because they were pretty sure he was blaspheming. Okay, that he was, he was speaking against God, that he was claiming things about himself that weren't true and trying to put himself in the position of their deity. Now here's the deal. He does regularly, consistently in this gospel put himself in the place of God. And I've said that he's done this unashamedly. He is not afraid to identify himself. But now... Where this crowd had made the assumption that this was going on, Jesus gives them no recourse but to hear the words themselves. He boldly proclaims who he is, what he's about. And what he's come to do. Now we're going to skip ahead a little bit here in the text. I do encourage you, everyone, go home and read this chapter. This is like my favorite chapter in this entire gospel. And it's a great gospel. It's my favorite gospel. In fact, the Crump's bought me a board game called the Gospel of John. And I'm looking forward to playing it. I'm not sure how a board game based on a single gospel works. But I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, in chapter 8, verse 31b through 32, it says, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a statement about the identity of Jesus. See, the people he's speaking to, they abide in the scriptures they have taken very seriously some statements that god has made in the law about how important and essential it is to write the scriptures on your doorposts to wear them on your foreheads to to have them like in your garments, and to as you're walking and as you're sitting and as you're standing, wherever you go, to be repeating these words over and over again, to incorporate the word of God, the scriptures, the text, the the commands that he has given to them into their day-to-day life. The idea of abiding in the word is deeply embedded in who they are as a people. And when Jesus says, if you abide in, not the word, But my word, you are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now Jesus has already invoked the book of Exodus at the beginning of this. For Israelite people, there was this belief that you lived in continuity With your forefathers, that the things that had happened to them had happened to you personally. When Moses left Egypt with a crowd of Israelites behind him, you were delivered from Egypt. You were no longer in captivity. You were no longer in bondage. You were no longer a slave. And so when Jesus says that they need to be set free, there is this immediate frustration with him. Don't you know who we are? We're Abraham's children. We've never been slaves. Now, first of all, they're doing the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to say, yeah, we were slaves at one point, but we're not slaves anymore because God has rescued our people. But they've conveniently managed to skip from Abraham to themselves while forgetting about the national identity that the Israelite people have carried around with them for thousands of years. The identity of slaves in need of rescue by a God who loves them desperately. Jesus is making some pretty clear statements about himself here, but the Israelite people have forgotten who they are. Jesus says, I need to set you free. That's our story. Yahweh. Needs to set you free. But you don't think you need to be set free from anything. You are so confident in an identity that you have assumed for yourself. Because here's their rebuttal they say, We are Abraham's children. We have never been slaves. And Jesus is thinking, You you really don't know how this works. You're not Abraham's children. Your father is the devil. Now, there are a lot of times that I think Jesus is very kind and patient and and measured with people. I think the words that he chooses are often intended to encourage, lift up, build, edify. But sometimes, in order to get people to see the truth, you got to say some pretty harsh things. And when Jesus calls this crowd of men who should know who they are Sons of the devil, they are irate. They are angry. Who are you? Who are you to call us sons of the devil? They're thinking in their heads, this is is the thing echoing and rattling around in there. I want you to think for just a moment about what it means for someone to call you a son of the devil, right? There are a lot of insults that get thrown around in our world nowadays. That is really high on the list of things that someone could say that might be offensive to you. But you know what? Now they're really listening to Jesus. Before, they were just waiting for more blasphemy. They're waiting for more ways in which Jesus is going to say, I am God. I am the one who rescued from Egypt. I am the one who will give you freedom. But now, now that he's calling them sons of the devil, saying that they're not children of Abraham, he is quite out of his mind. And they're fuming over this. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God. I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Did you catch the I am statement in there? I am here. God with you, in your presence, and you don't see me. We've talked about the themes of the Gospel of John. In fact, one of our first sermons was talking about these themes that pop up. And at the very beginning of the Gospel, John tells us very clearly that The Son came into the world, that Jesus Christ came into the world, that the Word of God came into the world, and his own did not recognize him. And right here, Jesus is saying, look, I am here, and you don't know me. And if you abide in my Word, if you abide in my Word, you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In fact, multiple times now, Jesus has challenged them that when they think that they're abiding in the word, they're doing something else entirely. You're not looking for the identity of God. You're looking for check check marks, check boxes, little tasks to do. You're looking for ways in which to please God through your actions, and yet because you don't know who God is, because you don't know what he's about, because you don't know his character and his nature, you can't possibly find him in the scriptures. And you're still so busy looking for ways to please him through your activity that you've forgotten that he loves you already. And if you would know him, all the other stuff is going to sort itself out. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is where I begin to hear Paul's words talking about being a slave to sin. Being chained by the law. A law that had no power to give life, but only power to give death. Jesus says, look, you, you have thought that what you have in front of you is a legal book. Intended to give you statutes. Intended to to give you the opportunity to judge others, to be able to lift yourself up and show how holy and righteous and pure you are. But what you actually have in front of you is God expressing his undying love for you. And because instead of looking for the God that is revealed in Scripture, you're looking for ways to condemn the people around you, you have missed the point. You've made yourselves slaves, sons of the devil. But I am here. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word, to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. If you remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, there is this really interesting account of the temptation of Jesus, in which Satan continually quotes Scripture at Jesus. He brings him to a place and he says, you know, if you're the Son of God, you could command these stones and turn them into bread, which is taken from the Old Testament. There's this moment where he's tempting him with the whole world. All you have to do is cast yourself down. Because won't the angels attend you? Isn't that what Scripture says? And Jesus passes the test not because he's better at quoting Scripture, although he is. He passes the test because he realizes the character of God that is revealed in Scripture surpasses any one verse. It is the image of an entire story of a God that is pursuing humanity through the ages Intending to reclaim and redeem them. And it's easy to take little bits and pieces and throw it out there and quote it. And when you do, in the attempt to catch someone, to lead them into temptation, or to accuse them, you're doing the will of your father, the devil. Because that's not what Scripture's for. Scripture is not a tool for judgment. It may be, if we use it that way. It is a tool for the revelation of the nature and character of God, for the changing of people, more importantly, for the changing of heritage. See, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we believe that he is I Am, if we believe that he is the light of the world, It's going to change us. If we abide with the word, abide with Jesus, if we listen, if we take in what it is that he's saying, but more importantly, why he's saying it and what it says about him, we are set free from so much. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. A couple of years ago, I did a camp uh, for a bunch of teenagers, and we used hashtag truth as our big theme for camp. And we found a whole bunch of tweets online that were kind of ridiculous. If you don't know what tweets are, that's okay. I'll explain it to you later. You can come find me, and I'll explain Twitter. Don't get on Twitter, because it's awful. It's horrible. But people will put these tweets up, and they'll they'll put a hashtag on, which is a way of saying, this is what this tweet is about. They'll put hashtag truth, and then it might be something innocuous, like hashtag truth. Chick-fil-A is life, right? That's their big thing. Like, this is the most wonderful thing I've ever discovered. Hashtag truth. uh, I need one more donut than I already have. Hashtag truth. uh, My mom is the best. And for them, all of these things are true. They're real statements. They're things that they actually care about and love. Sometimes hashtag truth statements can be really awful. They can target a group of people or target an individual and, and make false claims about them. Our world thinks it has the market cornered on truth, but the truth is Jesus. April Hammer's brother wrote me a song for that camp, actually. It was pretty fantastic, and I had it stuck in my head all day. Here's the deal. Jesus makes it very clear that the world out there thinks it knows the truth. And there are times where people who who should know better Make assertions about what God's word means and what it's for, and they use it inappropriately. It is possible for you to approach Scripture and walk away with some horrible, awful thoughts about what God wants for you. When you read Scripture devoid of Jesus, it is possible for you to mistreat the word of God. But if you read Scripture with the word of God in mind, you will walk away with some very different ideas about what it's about. I want to leave you with this last couple of thoughts here. It says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This group of people, they have built up their entire identity on their relationship to a man who has died centuries, millennia, before they walked this earth. And confident that their identity as blood offspring of Abraham is their salvation. They have continually and repeatedly abused one another and the people around them. And they say, you... You think you know what our relationship to Abraham is, but you have no idea. Jesus says, oh, you, you really have no idea. Before Abraham was, I am. And in that phrase, he wraps up their entire history. I know you descended from Abraham, but you are not his children. Abraham came to fear God, not not because he was afraid that God was going to destroy him or take him away, but because he recognized the identity of the God he served. And in recognizing that identity, he was changed drastically. And If you were his children, you would be changed drastically as well. And with this statement, I am... They pick up stones. Now, I want you to think about last week in the story of the woman caught in adultery, okay, just for a moment here. That happened around the temple. It's not a big abundance of rocks just laying around the temple. They drop their stones and they walk away. This week, this section of scripture takes place in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And here, after Jesus has made yet another bold claim about his identity, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Where did they find these stones? This, this amazes me because every time they're in the temple, and I don't know if you've seen temples, but there's not just piles of gravel laying around. They came ready to stone Jesus just like they came ready to stone the woman because they don't want to hear the truth. They want to judge. They want someone to judge. They are not interested in justice. They're definitely not interested in mercy. What they desire in the depths of their heart is the opportunity to be the judge. That's what makes them children of the devil. See, Satan is cast in Scripture as someone who is looking for opportunities to lay blame anywhere he can. His literal name means "adversary." Accuser." We are not called to be accusers. We are called to be children of the light, of the truth, of the Son of God. This morning I want to challenge you with this, and I'm going to wrap up here in just a second. Find time this week to be a person who is set on setting others free through Jesus. There are plenty of judges in this world We are not called to be among them. In fact, Jesus, in the middle of this text, tells the crowd that he is not there to judge. Although he could, is his statement. But he's there to set them free. This is the second time now that Jesus has said that he has not come to judge. John 3, now John 8. I think Jesus wants us to hear those words. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to be your disciples. We want to be children of the living God. We want to walk in the light so we are not in the darkness. We want to be led out of bondage into freedom. We want to be able to truthfully say that we are not slaves and that we do not do the works of Satan, but instead we do the works of you. Help us to hear Jesus' words, I do not come to judge. Help us to be liberators rather than oppressors. Help us to stand in the correct place in the love of our brothers and sisters, in the love of our neighbors, and even in the love of our enemies. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways we can bless you or encourage you, I want to encourage you to seek me out at the back of the building, uh, at the back of the auditorium. Our elders are here. They would be happy to pray with you. We've got some ladies here this morning that would pray with you as well. If you want to be baptized, we want to baptize you, uh, and we want you to find yourself redeemed in the blood of the Lamb, the Son who has come to set you free. If you have need of the church this morning, I'd invite you to join me at the back as we stand and sing.